When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So I wanted to start off uh, today's podcast talking about, well, we'll call it an update on JP Morgan's shenanigans within the precious metals markets. Now, of course, JP Morgan has had a, a target on their back in the precious metals community for, well, for many years now. I don't know exactly, you know, I'm going to guess this was maybe back in 20, uh, 2011, maybe when it started, 2013, you know, maybe it was the whole buy silver crash JP Morgan um, campaign that that it really gained some momentum. But but even here in 2020, they continued to catch a lot of flack for their practices within the precious metals markets, um, which which recently actually culminated in a, a pretty significant fine for the company. Is reported by Zero Hedge as well as many other outlets. Uh, JP Morgan agreed to pay $920 million in, in fines related to uh, market manipulation. In this case, primarily, primarily, it sounds like they're talking about spoofing. We can talk briefly about spoofing here in a second. Um, that occurred in the precious metals markets as well as. Uh, the treasury markets. Now, uh, you know, a lot of headlines will say specifically the gold and treasury markets, but, you know, if you look, it actually is also including other precious metals markets, including uh, silver, uh, platinum, and, and palladium. Now, spoofing is is a practice that is that is illegal. Uh, what, what it amounts to is um, entering a, an order on a market, either buy or sell orders, without any intention of actually filling those orders. Oftentimes these orders are in large amounts. And as soon as they're placed, uh, before they can actually be filled, they're, they're pulled off the market. And the market responds anyways, right? I mean, what would you do if all of a sudden you saw a whole bunch of buy orders for gold? Well, you know, you might buy before the price actually goes up. You made a hefty profit, especially if you're a, a day trader, if you're a... If you're an algorithm, if you're not an actual person, just an algorithm. The same thing goes for sell orders. It's it's a good way to manipulate the market, and and I think what they focused a lot a lot a lot in this this uh, article this uh, this lawsuit is the money that J P Morgan made, or and or the money that other firms or investors or individuals lost as a result of this practice. In this case. Uh, over $300 million in losses in the precious metals and treasury markets for these other market participants. And so you know, it's obvious, let's say JP Morgan, you know, they bring this up in the article here, and let's say JP Morgan wants to sell some silver, sell some gold, sell some treasuries, they can spoof the market higher and then sell it at a higher price. But I think it goes much further than that in terms of manipulation you have to ask yourself what type of an effect this type of spoofing has on market volatility and what does it have on investor sentiment and, and 
psychology. Silver and gold, for a long time, were very much disliked by a lot of investors, even people like you and I that were stackers for forever or, or silver and gold investors because of the volatility and because whenever it seemed to, to get a run to the upside, there would always be these mysterious high volume situations where all of a sudden a massive amount of, of notional paper silver or paper gold were just dumped on the market, forcing it down. Now, we haven't seen that as much in the last few months. We've actually seen a considerable move to the upside. But for many, many years, whenever we would see the beginning of a move such as this, again, you would see a huge dumping of paper metals. Was that just JP Morgan? Well, it certainly could have been influenced by JP Morgan and, let's be honest, other banks as well, and, and their spoofing practices. In fact, it's so commonplace that some, you know, one trader actually said he, he didn't even realize he's doing anything wrong because it was so common. That's, that's a, it's a cultural problem. It's a systemic problem within the markets. Now, 920 million, let's, let's be clear, is a slap on the wrist. If you, if you suppose that they caused $300 million in losses, you know, it might sound like a lot. But again, if we're going into, you know, the actual structure of the markets and how it has been, you know, altered by this, by this habitual spoofing practice, you know, I, it seems to be a little light to me, right? Maybe we have to look beyond just monetary fines as well as, you know, some of the criminal um, charges that came out of this as well, or convictions, and also look at, you know, does there need to be more oversight of this type of activity in the market? Or should some banks or trading desks, such as JP Morgan, be just, you know, excluded from certain markets altogether? You know, I think that would be a reasonable punishment. JP Morgan and its subsidiaries and whatnot, uh, you know, can't, can't trade in the commodities markets or the treasury markets for, you know, X amount of years. I think that'd be reasonable. Of course, that's not what's happening. 920 million though, you know, in 2019, we'll see what it is in 2020, given the recession and whatnot. But in 2019, JP Morgan turned a profit north of $36 billion. A little less than 1 billion compared to a profit of over 36 billion. That's a pretty significant discrepancy. We're talking about, you know, what, maybe 3% of their total profit in 2019, that's what this fine amounted to. And I'll remind you that this is something that occurred for years, allegedly from 2008 to 2016, eight years. Personally, I don't think the manipulation stopped in 2016, um, nor did it just suddenly start in 2008. So, you know, we're talking about eight plus years of manipulation and less than you know three percent or less than four percent of one year's profit as a fine. I'd be interested to see if there's any guesstimate of how much money JP Morgan has actually made off of this practice as well. Um, but again, that's going to be hard to to actually quantify. Now, since we're on the topic of JP Morgan, let's do another update on their practices within the precious metals community. And of course, what I'm talking about is their their massive silver hoard. Now, this is something I've talked about in the past. Again, this has been a long time since I've talked about it. Many people have talked about it. They're, they're silver socks, their depositories, uh, which continue to grow 
actually right now they're at a record high 183 over 183 million ounces of silver within JP Morgan's uh, depository and I'll also remind you, you know I don't have on my ha- on hand you know the depositories for for other major banks but JP Morgan is is head and shoulders above the rest. This isn't a normal practice. It's not like JP Morgan has 183 and oh, Bank America has, you know, 120, you know, Citigroup has another 100,000, Wells Fargo's 80, you know, or 100 million. No, uh, this is this is aberrant compared to, you know, other major large banks. North of 180 million, of course. I'll remind you that this this practice essentially started when the silver market started moving to the downside in 2011, you know, after it, it ultimately peaked, um, by 2015, their holdings amounted to, to roughly 40, 50 million in that ballpark. Um, by 2016, they had risen to, to, you know, 60, 70 million, um, roughly 2017, they topped a hundred million. And of course now we're talking 180 million ounces, 183, actually over 183 million ounces. And all the well, for the most part, all the while, their their holdings have gone up in value, especially in the last few months. You know, let's say 2017, when when they officially surpassed 100 million. Well, we were talking about, you know, sub 20 dollar silver. Let's say 17, 18 dollar silver. You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, um, 18. You know, somebody can do the math on that. 1.8 billion dollars worth of silver. Well, now we're talking about 183 million ounces at, you know, $24 an ounce. You know, that's the other really interesting side of this is how their silver holdings have have increased. Now, you know, the question has always been why are they holding this much silver? Some have said that it's it's just clients. It's not JP Morgan, but it's it's some clients that they're holding silver for. Um, you know, Others have said that they use this, that their, you know, the U.S. government basically owns a silver through J.P. Morgan. You know, you know, my personal perspective on it has been that, first of all, J.P. Morgan is buying this for more than just clients. And this is more than just clients that they're buying this for. Um, again, this is this is not normal among other major large banks. Um they're buying this maybe partly on the behalf of clients, but also, you know, for, for preparation for something, whether it's debasement of, of currency, um, they see silver has taken an important role in, in the global marketplace and would rather be in something in more, more undervalued rather than, you know, just going into to physical gold, which I'm sure they have a fair amount of anyways. Um, it's hard to say, but I think the other side of it also was that for a long time, you know, from my perspective, they were using a lot of this silver stocks to to make money for themselves when when silver volatility was was uh well when it was essentially range bound for a very long time. Uh, J.P. Morgan, I think personally, again, this is speculation on my on my behalf, used these silver holdings to to take advantage of. basically the range bound nature of, of silver. What I mean by that is, is we know that JP Morgan has heavy influence over the price in these precious metals markets. Well, what happens if you do something like, like sell, um, sell volatility, meaning, you know, through the options markets or other options, uh, option, other options, other than options, if that makes sense. Let's say JP Morgan does something along the lines of sell a, 
sell a, a out-of-the-money uh, call option or sell an out-of-the-money you know, put option. You know, basically, they, you know, there's traders out there that are betting on a big swing to the upside in price or a big swing to the downside. Well, that was range-bound for a long time. And as we said, you know, it's probably largely because of J.P. Morgan. Well, then they can make money on that along the way because they know that there's a very, very, very low likelihood of silver topping, let's say, $19 an ounce. And so all those call options for $20 plus or let's say, you know, $12 and below are going to expire worthless and they can make money off of this huge hoard of silver in the meantime. Their hoard continues to grow. And it's something I'll, I'll continue to try and keep you guys updated on. Um, and it continues to be one of the bigger stories in the silver market. But, you know, it's also a story that we've been talking about for, for years and years now. So we'll see how it ends up. Plenty of theories out there as to why they have it. You know, the final thing I wanted to talk about today is, is not actually silver, uh, as much silver related. Certainly it would affect the market. But the debate last night. Now, I'm not going to get into the performance of the, the, the two candidates um, or the politics of it. Um, I, I did not watch the whole debate. You know, I tuned in for, for a portion of it early on. I listened to, to some of it um, towards the end. And, and actually, that was what I found most interesting. Uh, actually, I tuned in at the end, uh, towards the end, when they were having a discussion about the election itself. Namely, the, the potential legitimacy or illegitimacy of the election. And, and I don't think, you know, when, when on Monday I talked about the potential of a disputed election. I don't think that was groundbreaking stuff. I think a lot of people have been anticipating that that's a possibility. But I think it's a possibility that markets and, and maybe the broader population have not come to terms with, with what a disputed election looks like. As I said, you know, it, it could look make 2016 and Russian interference look like a blip on the radar. It could make, you know, the hanging chads and, 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 Florida 20 or not 2020, but, but 2000 Bush and, and Gore make that look like a, a, a small blip on the radar, even though that took a long time to resolve. Because what happens if this time around, it's not just, you know, do you count these ballots or, or do you not? What happens if this time around the accusations are more so along the lines of, wait a second, we, um, you know, we found all of these lost ballots I think this could go either way. I think mail-in voting is going to play a huge role in this. You know, as as Trump was even talking about the fact that they're accepting mail-in ballots so far beyond the actual election day itself, it makes it the environment ripe for accusations of election fraud. When was the last time the United States had an election with with what will be you know potentially very widespread accusations of fraud, not just Russian interference? I mean, one of the important things to understand about Russian interference is that even Democrats, I don't think, really made a whole lot of accusations that Russians actually were changing votes or hacking into voting machines. What happens if this time around, you know, we get to November 4th, some of these states are fairly close. You know, Biden even said so himself that he's pledging to not, you know, declare victory until it's been independently verified, whatever that means, what happens if, you know, number fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh come along, we're still tallying up these votes, waiting for it to be independently verified. And then we hear these stories of, oh, look at this. We found a whole, you know, bag of mail 
full of, of mail-in ballots that we forgot to count. What happens about the, all, all the ballots that are sent in on November 3rd and not tallied until a week later or a couple of days later, right? And then you add on to that a high amount of a distrust of, of the election system in the first place because of some of the, you know, incidents that, that you know, Trump has bought, brought up. And then believe me, Democrats will have allegations as well, I'm sure. And it's going to be more elaborate than just, you know, Russians were telling people how to vote or something like that. Um, what happens when you have those allegations? How does this play out? Because the fact of the matter is that, you know, the far right and the far left, people that are very passionate about their political party winning this next election, one side has shown their, their willingness. And I don't want to call all Democrats or all, you know, liberal individuals or far left individuals or whatever, call them them a bunch of lawless individuals or rioters or anything like that. However, the, the, the left has shown that they're, they're very willing to protest, make their voice heard very loudly, and to, you know, at least some portion of them engage in, in things like property destruction, violence, etc. And the right has shown, I would argue, a little more restraint. Granted, they're not on, you know, they're not necessarily the protest. Usually they're protesting against the protesters. The right just so happens to be heavily armed, more heavily armed than the left, right? We're talking militia groups, etc. Um, hundreds of people walking up and down the streets of major cities with, you know, AR-15, AK-47 pattern rifles over their shoulders. I mean, that's, that's a powder keg. It, you know, these... The disruption to the society, the riots, protests that we see from November 3rd onward could make even June 2020 riots and protests look like just a small, you know, precursor, the appetizer to, to the main course. So, something to be wary of. As always, though, I'd like to thank you guys all from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast, and God bless.